Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Darden. All right, uh, kiddos. We have Elevate this morning. We also have EGC this morning where kids will be going through the New City Catechism. And I see some adults getting up too and leaving. What we have for you is in here. Um... We are actually going to wrap up 1 John this morning, and we're going to wrap up with all of chapter 5, which is okay because a lot of chapter 5 is, is kind of, a, is kind of re, uh, restating all that, that John has stated uh, in, his, uh, in his letter to this church in Ephesus. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series going through the thing that has unified us and bound us together not only since... Uh, the shutdown uh, in the pandemic, but also uh, throughout history and with our church and around the world, as we've said, the Apostles' Creed together. And we're going to spend some time going through the, the Apostles' Creed. And so we'll start that next week so that you'll know what, are, what am I saying every week when, I, when, we, when we recite this and to kind of give us some, uh, the Apostles' Creed functions well as a suitcase to carry around and unpack all of the depths of truth of what we uh, hold to uh, in Scripture. So we'll start that next week. Um, but this week we're going uh, uh, to wrap up First John. And I am very grateful, Joel, on very short notice, coming out of the bullpen a couple weeks ago and uh, uh, preaching on God's love for us and our love in return. Uh, I will say that he, he didn't like completely take um, my opening illustration. We didn't even communicate about it. But he did, he did kind of infringe upon it a little bit, but I, I, have, I do have it intact, and I think I'll be able to use it again uh, sometime soon, and you won't even know, you won't even know it. Uh, but uh, I am very grateful uh, that Joel, uh, uh, as a computer programmer by trade, if, I, if you, you may not know that, but able to step in and prepare a sermon uh, very quickly. So I'm grateful uh, for that. Um, but today, again, we're going to cover the end of chapter 5. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read this for you. Uh, we're going to read the last few verses of, of 1 John chapter 5 and then use that to kind of form an outline that we'll go through and then unpack the rest of it. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. 
Um, so we're going to go back through and look at 1 John chapter 5 as he kind of gives this beautiful summary of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, what it is to, be the, 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 to bear the name of Jesus, not only as individuals but as a people, and then what is our ultimate goal, what are we, what are we then uh, living for um, as we build our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. Uh, Norm MacDonald, the late Norm MacDonald, tells uh, a joke where he said, uh, said a guy was talking to a friend, and, and you have to, you'll have to imagine this in, in Norm MacDonald's voice, but he said a guy's talking to a friend and kind of lamenting. He's like, man, I lost $50,000 this week betting on sports. It's terrible. He's like, my baseball teams were 0 for 8, and my basketball teams were 0 for 6. Football was worse. Was, my football teams were 0 for 10. I'm running out of things to bet on. And the guy said, well, have you thought about hockey? And he's like, what, are you serious? I don't know anything about hockey. <laughs> All right. You ever feel like that? I feel like this could be a moniker for our world today, right? Trust me, I'm an expert. I know everything. Where it always feels like anything that we do know is, is actually a gamble. And it's exhausting. And when it comes to religion, when it comes to scripture, when it comes to the Bible and Jesus and all of that, everyone in our day has their hot take. Even the ones with, we don't need any hot takes, hot takes. Everybody has their view. And I want, you need to know my view. And one of the reasons that John writes this letter to these believers in Ephesus over and over and over again, he tells them, I'm writing this to you so that you may know. If you want an exercise, go through 1 John, 1 John and count how many times John says the word, know, so that you may know, so that you may have confidence. And so we're going to, we start at the end of chapter 5, but we're going to kind of go our, work our way back. But even as what we just read, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And so our, our outline this morning as we walk through the rest of John chapter 5 is this. Who has been born of God? By whom are we born of God? And to what end are we born? So with that, let's go back to 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. And let, that, let us start us off here. 1 John, 1, 1 through, uh, 1 John 5, 1 through 5 says this, everyone who, believes that Jesus Christ has been, uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky once declared uh, in, in one of his novels that beauty will save the world. And in his Nobel laureate speech, fellow Russian Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was the survivor of Gulag's brilliant underground author in Russia that was actually brought out and made quite famous and popular until it was discovered that he was a follower of Jesus and then he was kind of lumped into everything else, but quite, quite bluntly responded to that in his Nobel laureate speech and he said, what sort of a statement is that? When in the bloodthirsty history did, be did beauty ever save anyone from anything? The fallen nature, that was right on cue, the fallen nature of humankind, which is our default nature, is sinful, it's rebellious, it's broken, it's fearful, it's insecure, it's wounded, it's all of those things. As Christians, we're often quick to go, uh, I know that I'm sinful. Here are the things that I do that are not right. Uh, and, and, and certainly that is part of that, the decisions and the omission and the commission and all of that stuff. But what you need to understand is the, the sinfulness that separates us from God is not only the sins that we make as bad decisions or as doing bad things or in rebellion or whatever, but it's also the sins that have been committed against us that spur on our fears and our insecurity and our lack of trust and our hurt and our woundedness, that have great impact on us and how we cope and deal and process and trust and act. And the beauty of what takes place in what we call salvation in response to what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is this. It's that we are biologically human and yet spiritually fallen and separated from God, but that we can be supernaturally, spiritually born again, or what John calls here, born of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we cease to be biologically human, but it does mean that our heart that has been in opposition or in fear or in rebellion or rejection of God for what other, whatever other coping mechanism we want to find has now been softened and redeemed so that we're, we can actually begin to trust God. And how this happens, it happens when a person puts their faith or belief in Jesus as the Christ, which Christ is the official name that we have given Jesus, but it also it means in Greek the anointed one the Savior, the Messiah. Or as we sometimes say here, that, that we confess that Jesus is the hero of our messed up story. Now, this belief that John is talking about here, this doesn't necessarily mean that you never doubt. It doesn't mean that you never ask questions uh, or waver. That's what a, a hard belief and trust will always have, the means by which we prove it and test it which means doubts and asking questions and sometimes wavering and sometimes wondering how does this work out. And so it doesn't mean that we don't ever have any doubts, but it also definitely doesn't mean uh, that um, it is kind of a passive, yeah, sure, of course I believe in Jesus type of thing. That is not what we're talking about when we say putting our belief in Jesus, because it's easy, or it's culturally acceptable, or it suits our political causes, or we can fit it or shape it into however we want. 
A deep conviction or a belief that costs is never something that is presumed or assumed. And that's what John's talking here. And that will always come with questions or doubts, ways of testing and ways of revealing, as any belief that we have that is costly does. Um, let me give you a better way, I think, perhaps semantically to hear this, okay? Because we hear often, put your faith in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus and, and, and trust Jesus. And uh, I think we hear that differently than people in the first century would have heard that. Uh, and then we say, it's not works. We're not talking about works. And I get that. But maybe when you hear the words, whoever believes in Jesus, perhaps to hear that in terms of whoever's daily lives and their devotions and their affections and their emotions and their conviction and their compassion and their behavior is greatly impacted by their belief in Jesus. It's not an add-on. It is the very lens by which we see the world. John helps us to know the evidence that this belief is taking root in us uh, in this, that we actually start to love God. And we actually start to love God's people. And doing those things, we are actually loving his commands, that those become less of a burden. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't know if this is everybody's default way of hearing this, but when I hear, even when I hear the term holiness and I hear, you know, we need to obey the commands of Jesus, this is what I hear. I hear, I, just, I get this, like this picture in my mind of this good, moral, upright, we do good things and we don't do bad things, right? Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date the girls that do. That type of, <laughs> that type of mantra. Um, and... And that is not, that is not, morality is certainly an aspect of following Jesus, but we need to be careful when we set that up because it is, it is an overflow of what it does mean to obey, or, uh, to keep his commands. Um, if we go back to the apex of God's commandments, right? The Big Ten, not the lousy football, not the football conference, sorry, but the commandments. Not one of the power five. How's that? But the, the, uh, but the Ten Commandments. The Big Ten. When, when we see that uh, when our morality, is mis our morality is often affected because our loves and our affections are disordered. When our love of God and our love of neighbor becomes more about love of self. Now, I also want you to hear this. Christianity is not about hating yourself. I think that slips in easily. Well, we're sinful. We should hate ourselves. No. We are sinful. We should hate our sin. Do you know what our sin does? It destroys ourselves. There's a difference. We are called to love ourselves. And this is not like psychobabble or just, you know, the New Age feel-goodery type stuff. This is like we are called to actually love ourselves as Christ loved us. The problem is when we love ourselves as God, that's when our our orders, uh, our, our passions get disordered. When we love ourselves as God, we will plot against and scheme against our neighbor. We will live out of our defensiveness. 
which means people will come, become an end to our means, that we will judge ourselves by who we are better than or who we are worse than, that we will let our wounds define us, that we will, uh, we will lose compassion and mercy to anyone who might threaten our sense of self-autonomy. And on down the list. We cannot love our neighbor in self-defense. You cannot hug somebody like this. This is self-protection. Our sins and the sins against us put us in a rebellious and or a defensive state against God. But to be born again through faith in Christ is to be born with a posture of heart that can actually trust God. And when we can trust God, we no longer need to use others for our self-validation, for our self-affirmation. But we are actually free to love others and ourselves because we don't need to convince other people that we're more than we are. We can love others and we can love ourselves as Christ has loved us. And we learn and grow in doing these things and they become less and less of a burden and more and more of a blessing and a reminder of Christ's love for us and who we, uh, that we are able to escape, or as John puts it, to overcome the world. So who has been born of God? Those whose lives are shaped by their faith and trust in Jesus who have put their belief and trust in him. And who is Jesus? And what has he done, you may ask? And I'm glad you did. Verses 6 through 12. This is how John answers that. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men and the testimony of God is... Uh, if we receive the, uh, the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, uh, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son, and whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son does not have life. Now, uh, you may have heard that and gone, ah, what? You're not alone. This can be a confusing passage, one of the more confusing in the New Testament. What does John mean when he says, um, uh, to these believers in Ephesus that he is the one who came by water and blood. Now, there are some various theories on what this means, some various thoughts on uh, what is uh, the water and the blood. Luther and Calvin both had some thoughts toward uh, the idea that this is referring to baptism and communion, that followers of Jesus and participating in baptism, which we celebrated earlier, and communion, that we are receiving Christ as he has come through the water and the blood. And they would have... Uh, which, which certainly has uh, a, a measure of merit to it. Augustine, or if you've been to seminary, Augustine suggested that uh, this might be referring to the water and the blood that flowed from the side of our blessed Redeemer when he was pierced with the sword, proving his death on the cross. And still others would say the water is the birth that he was, the amniotic fluid of being born of a woman and the blood his death. I, Tertullian, I think, um, 
One of the earliest interpretations of this passage that he put forth, and certainly all of these have a measure of merit, uh, Tertullian seems to have the most powerful, uh, I think, interpretation of this. And I also think it makes, it makes sense that Christ came by the water, his baptism, which is essentially, to understand this, Jesus did not need to be baptized. We are baptized to identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was not baptized to identify with himself. Jesus was actually baptized to identify with us. To say, see, I am coming as one of you. And then the blood, of course, uh, marking his crucifixion. The death that he incurred, not for his sin, but in our, for our sin. The substitutionary atonement that Jesus accomplished by shedding his blood on our behalf. Uh, there are those who have taught um, the, the idea of the Christ spirit, that Jesus was actually a man, and the Christ Spirit came upon him when he was baptized in the water, and that was the dove descending from heaven, and then it left him before he was crucified. And the reason they would say this is because the idea of God himself being killed, uh, that is, that we, this is more of a Gnostic belief where, where uh, the physical realm is so detestable, and what we really need is we need to be spiritual. And we see this a lot throughout uh, the New Testament. This is, uh, John uh, argues that with this a lot. Paul does as well. Uh, a lot of pagan believers. And what John has said throughout uh, his letter, what he was huge on making sure that we knew um, from the very get-go was that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. That this was the Word made man, become flesh. That this, that he uh, that we touched him and saw him and heard him with our own ears and looked at him with our own eyes. That he was the word of life. And this is the foundation of our flesh, uh, of our faith, that God has come in the flesh, in the person of Christ, lived the life that we should have lived, being baptized to identify with us, died the death we should have died, uh, being crucified in our place, and the Holy Spirit and his baptism and his death bear witness historically, existentially, philosophically, theologically, that this is who Christ is and this is what he has accomplished. And those who put your faith in him, whose lives are reoriented around Christ our King, what should become of those? John says that they would have life. Let's go back to the text, and we'll land soon here. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So in other words, those who have said, I put my faith and my trust in Jesus, I'm writing to you. What, class? That you may know that you have eternal life. And if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In the second part, I'm going to give a brief explanation of, uh, but, but more of a general. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. And to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, uh, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, 
There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, here again, a little confusing part here. What are we talking about? Um, let me answer with a robust, I don't know. Okay, that's confession. Here's what I do know from this passage and what John is saying. A simple word of, of summary for those two verses. Commune with, fight alongside, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you see a brother or sister in sin, John does not say, uh, ignore it. John does not say, tell everybody else about it. John does not say, distance yourself from them in a passive-aggressive type of thing. Post verses online that are kind of dealing with them, but not naming their name. John says, pray for them. The sin that leads to death, it's unclear if he's talking about spiritual or physical death. Um, because he says brothers. If you see a brother in sin, and nowhere has John advocated that there is a sin that can take us away from the grace and mercy of Jesus. So it's unclear if, if John is actually talking about spiritual death or physical death. Uh, although it's also weird if you see a brother committing a sin that will lead to physical death that you would not interfere um, Grand summary, be in communion with, fight alongside, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. As we walk as people who have put our faith in Christ. But all the more what's before that, what becomes of the one whose life is altered and shaped by our faith in Christ? The answer is this, life. Life. That's our calling. That is our commission. That is what, as John says earlier, this is what overcomes the world. Several weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about um, the battle that we fight uh, as followers of Jesus. Uh, John Mark Homer got a phenomenal book, uh, Live No Lies, Right? Yeah. Live no lies. A phenomenal book where he says our three main battles are the world, the flesh, the devil. Right? Uh, where you have the devil who gives us deceptive ideas uh, that appeal to our disordered desires of the flesh that are then normalized in a sinful society, the world around us. Overcoming the world, listen to me, all right? Listen to me. Overcoming the world does not mean if you endure a trial right now for a while that you will have financial and relational success in the future. Okay? Now, let me tell you, that will fill a church. But please, as much as we possibly can, avoid reading our capitalism back into first century culture. Overcoming the world has nothing to do with your financial success. Okay. Um, I 
I'm lost here in my notes. But this has, that we are given life, that we have overcome the world, the implications here are beautiful and full and, and all-encompassing, not only individually but corporately. And, and I will tell you, if you have seen any of the videos or footage, especially of the church coming out of Ukraine in the last couple of days, you have seen an amazing picture on display, a clinic of what it looks like for followers of Jesus who have overcome the world. Now, that we may have life, this is more than just being forgiven. It is more than just being reconciled to God. It, it, what that means to be reconciled to God. It's, it's more than just that we've been forgiven our sins uh, and, and try to avoid that from here on out. John says we have overcome the world and that we have life and that we have confidence before God. And it's not simply... Um, that our current state before God has been altered, but it's also that our current and everlasting commission from God has been sealed and given. And I think I've, I've understood this intellectually, but it's actually starting to open some eyes for me what this looks like um, and taking root to see what this commission looks like with new eyes. That we're not simply called to forgiveness, but we are actually called to beauty, to justice, to truth, to create and bless, imaging our Creator who has created and blessed. That we're giving eyes to see the world not simply as it is, although we are given eyes to see the world as it is, but also we are given eyes to see the world as it could be and by God's grace and mercy, the world as it one day will be. And we are unleashed to bring that beauty into the world now. That we've been called from death to life. Friends, indeed, beauty will save the world. Solzhenitsyn, again, from his lecture in 1972, he envisions two artists attempting to create beauty. One artist imagines himself the creator of an autonomous spiritual world. He hoists up on, on his shoulders the act of creating this world and populating it together with the total responsibility for it, but he collapses under the, under the load for no mortal genius can bear up under it. Just as in general, the man who declares himself the center of all existence is unable to create a balanced spiritual system. And if a failure befalls such a man, the blame is promptly laid to the chronic disharmony of the world, to the complexity of the modern man's divided soul, or to the public's lack of understanding. Another artist recognizes above himself a higher power and joyfully works as a humble apprentice under God's heaven. And though graver and more demanding still is his responsibility for all he writes or paints, and for the souls which apprehend it, however, it was not he who created this world, nor does he control it. There can be no doubts about its foundation. It is merely given to the artist to sense more keenly than others the harmony of the world, 
the beauty and ugliness of man's role in it, and to vividly communicate this to mankind, even amid failure and at the lower depths of existence, in poverty, in prison, and in illness, a sense of enduring harmony cannot abandon him. When God created the world, he pronounced it good. The word could also be substituted there, beautiful. There is a Greek word, kolos, often translated good, but can also easily be translated the beautiful shepherd. Or whatever tree does not bear beautiful fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Our commission as the people of God, as the church, as those who profess Christ as Lord and King, our commission, our calling is not simply to go to heaven when we die. And we are not given the mission of simply being more moral than other people or demanding that they live according to our rules. Christ's completed work is one that conquers death. And somehow we have been duped into thinking that being found in him means some kind of a political affiliation or moral killjoy or us versus themism. Christianity in the West has had our imagination absolutely numbed by our idolizing of cultural power. John finishes by warning us, little children keep yourselves from idols, but we love our idols. Our commission is far greater than this. To see and cultivate and pronounce beauty, goodness, and justice Solzhenitsyn skillfully and poetically weaves his way to his conclusion that Dostoevsky's words, beauty will save the world, were not simply a slip of the tongue, but rather a, pro a prophecy. For followers of Jesus, as we watch a war unfold of major global powers, not that wars have not been taking place, but the war of, an, of major global powers in the streets of Ukraine, I hope and pray that we've had our eyes opened a little bit of a greater reality. And listen, if you can only hear this in political or military terms or some kind of economic sanction type terms, I want to tell you that your imagination has been destroyed by a power that can only take place in this world. I am not talking about political terms here. What we have seen put on display in the midst of darkness is a heroic picture of what it looks like to love your neighbor, to love sacrificially, to be willing to lay down your life for those around you. The Western church has kind of preached this false masculinity, which is not a biblical term, by the way. Masculinity is a cultural term. It's not a biblical term, but we've seen this kind of mar false masculinity preached in Christian circles to be this powerful man and to prove your manliness. And we are seeing that toxic, insecure, overcompensating masculinity on display, and we are rightly calling him a tyrant. But we are also seeing men and women loving their city, loving their neighbors, risking their lives to protest, risking their lives to stay and fight the dangers or helping to protect the vulnerable, sorry, to fight the dragons, or helping, to provide, uh, helping, to, uh, helping and protecting the vulnerable who cannot stay. And it's far from perfect as the church often has been, but willing to face actual persecution and even death. This is the beauty that's on display that will overcome the world. 
There's something, that, there's something greater at work, even in the mundane day-to-day, and certainly when we see it pressed like this, than even our very lives and existence. A greater freedom than could ever be granted by a government of man. We're seeing a people, as we have seen throughout history, a people whose hope is in Christ, offer radical forgiveness, grace, praying and pleading on behalf of others, advocating for the poor and the outsider and the oppressed, and when necessary, even staring down the face of death, knowing that no tyrant, no Supreme Court justice, no celebrity pastor, no man-made law, no bias, not even death itself will have the final word. But Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And so we'll finish here as we join with saints around the world and we will weep and pray and sing with our brothers and sisters in Christ in this confession. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well Sing it, church. It is well with my soul. You know the fourth verse. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall Christ, hear our prayer. On days of peace, on days of chaos, when love of neighbor seems difficult, when love of neighbor may come easily, whether we're staring at the potential of our death or the monotony of our perceived life, 
May the truth of who we are in Christ and what he has accomplished sink deep into our souls so that we may know we serve a kingdom that will not fail. In Christ's name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.